Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The word trailblazer is thrown around way too much, but someone to whom it absolutely applies is Judy Woodruff, the anchor of the PBS NewsHour and one of the most distinguished broadcast journalists in our country. Uh, She knocked down barriers wherever Uh, She went as a young woman uh, making her way in broadcast journalism as one of the first women to cover the White House uh, and uh, later through uh, all her distinguished documentary work. Um, Judy really is a national treasure. And uh, I got a chance to sit down with her recently at her studios in Washington to talk about her life and career. Judy Woodruff, it's Great to be with you, as, as always. You know, um, and I've said this many times. I'm sure the people who listen to this podcast get sick of me saying it. But um, one of the great joys of this is you, have, you go back and you learn about people who you think you knew. Uh, everybody knows you as this sort of consummate journalist and anchor and someone who's been there for the big events and, and so on. But it's a kind of unlikely journey when you go back to uh, to the beginnings um, in uh, uh, in North Carolina and T- Tulsa. Tulsa, and, where I was yeah, born. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah. So talk about that and sort of how you how you grew up and what your aspirations and vision for your future was then. Well, I'm first of all, I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. I don't get to see you very often, but uh, congratulations on this podcast. Thank which you. Is, taken the place, the country by storm. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> it's fun anyway. And- um, so Tulsa, yes, that's my birthplace. My, I have to go back a little bit. My mother uh, was from Missouri, uh, and she had moved to Tulsa as a young woman and um, uh, as a teenager. And um, she met my father, who was from North Carolina. Yes. He was in the Army. This yes. was right around the end of World War II. Um, she grew up, and she had grown up in Tulsa, essentially, and her father died when she was 14. And the reason I'm telling you this, because it all relates to what happened to me, because he, when he died at 14, she basically dropped out of high school and stayed home to help take care of her siblings while her mother took three jobs mm-hmm. and worked uh, cleaning somebody's house and and a couple of other, you know, frankly, you know, hard labor kinds of work. And she, uh, that really shaped her. She never was able to finish high school, didn't go to college. 
Um, and my father neither was, did not finish high school. He got, got the equivalent of a, of a degree of a high school diploma in the army. But they both, you know, came from pretty simple backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and 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 Oklahoma is where all my mother's family is. So I've lived in Washington for forty years. <laughs> People think of me as Washington, but yeah. my roots are truly uh, in in Oklahoma, in North Carolina. And then, as I'll tell you a little bit about where I moved growing up as an as an army brat, we moved all over the world. Yeah, well, uh, well, I want to ask you about that and and how that sort of shaped your 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 thinking. But um, it's interesting because you are you you and your husband Al Hunt, one of the great uh, journalists uh, of my lifetime and uh, one of the great political writers. Um, as, uh, you know, for for decades and decades and decades, uh, are considered kind of icons of Washington, institutional figures here. How much does do 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 you as you watch the news, as you cover politics, as you've done uh, for so long? How much do you draw on your experience of growing up there, and how much do you think about your relatives who are from there, perhaps still there? I think about it a lot, um, and I think especially right now because we're going through this time where the country feels so divided, people, American people feel so divided, and I think about cousins and aunts and uncles and um, f- friends of family, as I'm, I mentioned, Oklahoma and North Carolina, Georgia, where I lived, where I went to high school. I still have friends in Augusta and Atlanta and around the state. Um, I think about that you know, that part of the country, um, and especially the middle of the country, we call it flyover. Yeah. But for me, it's it's not so easy to get there. There aren't many direct, in fact, there are no direct flights right now from Washington to Tulsa. But I do think about it a lot because we've got, I think we've somehow gotten to a place where people think the press, the media represents, you know, the, the East Coast, and maybe a little the West Coast, but not much in the middle. And I try, even though it's it's hard, you can't get those voices from the middle of the country on every day uh, on, on our program or in any news uh, uh, organization has a hard time reaching those voices, but they're there and we need to, we need to listen to them. You know, I was uh, really struck um, after the last election because I have a place in a rural uh, part of Michigan and uh, a place in downtown Chicago, just how... Um, big the gulf was between people in just a couple of hours away from each other um almost all my neighbors were trump supporters um not the caricature that uh, some would uh place on them not you know toothless ignorant you know racist that's not who they were but they did feel neglected they did feel sort of um, on the wrong side of the divide. And folks in Chicago uh, uh, were, you know, people around me were all for Hillary. And um, and to have that gulf just a couple of, you know, mi- just a few miles from each other. But part of it is that there is this assumption that the news media itself is on one side of the gulf. Right. And doesn't really understand that part of America that you call flyover America. 
my neighbors and so on. And in the South. I, I want to I want yeah, the South, the South is, because I have, I have friends I went to high school with um, who I occasionally am in touch with, I try to stay in touch with, who, um, you know, they, they're still friends. They're friendly. They reach out. I'm on a listserv uh, uh, from my high school class. Um, but the, there is there is a sense that the the media has gotten away from the center of the country that we've you know we, that many people look at many people in the press as being very well educated and frankly thinking we're smarter than everybody else and I you know that's not a blanket statement you know we we you know I frequently remind people we in the press are as diverse as the rest of the country. Um, we went to all kinds of schools. We didn't all go to Harvard and Yale and right. Duke, which I happen to go to. But, yeah. but we, so we are diverse. But there is a sense that we we've kind of gotten big for our britches, and I think I think we need to do a little self-reflecting about that, yeah. and and be careful that we don't assume that we have all the answers, just because. We got a good education, and we know a lot of smart people. Well, and I think, um, you know, when you look at where the hubs of the media are, including Washington, it becomes kind of insular. Um, you know, uh, I remember the one of the great bits of advice I got uh, years ago uh, in the 80s when Gary Hart was running for president. He said to me, just remember, Washington's always the last to get the news. And I thought that was kind of a profound statement. Uh, and you know, whether I that uh, you know, as a reporter and then as a strategist, my my thought was uh, it's really good to get out and talk to people and understand their lives and what's going on in their lives. I, I look at the coverage of Trump now, and you know, there's this there's an awful lot of outrage. Of, uh, that's reflected in, in the coverage uh, of him about some of the things that he does. But I think that there are people in the middle of the country who are interpreting these things in a much different way. In a much different way. And I, I, because I, I try to pay attention to what they're saying. I see it uh, online. I see it in Twitter. Um, I, you know, we talk a lot on the program about how we need to get out and, and hear those voices and cover those people. And we're, that's an important goal for us in covering this year's midterm elections. But it's a goal all the time to make sure that we're not just talking to ourselves, that we're not just talking inside the bubble here in Washington. Um, but I, I hear those voices, and I think you're right. I mean, they, I think they watch him and they listen to him and they they see and hear something different they're looking at him i think against the backdrop of the washington they've watched for the last however many years they feel out of touch some of them feel not heard or not listened to and and they think in some they feel in some way that he's speaking to them i think there's also a sense that the conventional game of politics that's played in this town hasn't served them well and that somehow he is by being so unconventional and sort of taking a blowtorch to all of it is following through on what he promised to do, shaking things up. You hear that a lot out there um, without a lot of focus on who benefits from the shakeup. But nonetheless, just the act of being unconventional uh, seems uh, authentic to them. I, that's exactly right. That's what I see. And I also see when I've talked to people who, who've said, I mean, I've talked to voters who've said to me, well, there just needs to be change. And sometimes they aren't even able to say 
what is the change? What do they want done differently? What is what do they want this all to lead to? Where where are we headed? And sometimes they don't even yet have a clear idea of that. They just know that what they see right now doesn't work for them. They don't feel it, it's 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 responding to what their needs are. Yeah. So it's you know it's something we in the press have. have just got to keep focusing on and keep talking to people about. So let's return to your journey. You talked about your uh, your your uh, uh, peripatetic childhood. What was it like to move from place to place as a as an army brat? Well, I didn't like it a lot because, um, in a very parochial sense, one for one thing, I had to take have shots, a whole battery of shots every time we moved from well, one t- place talk about to another. All the places you, you- well, when I was when I was turning five, when my mother and I were on a ship from uh, from the United States to to Germany to join my father. We lived there for three years. We came back on another ship and um, lived at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, for a year, third grade. And then we moved to uh, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Actually, we lived in Red Bank um, uh, and lived there not even a whole year. And my father was had orders to go to Taiwan. So my mother and I then, with my sister, by then I had a younger sister, who we moved back to Tulsa to live near her family until my father could bring dependents. Back then they called us dependents. The military would go first, and then a year later they'd let them bring children and spouses and so forth. And so then we went. We stayed in Tulsa for another six months or eight months, then to Taiwan, where we lived for a couple of years. And then my father uh, was assigned to Fort Gordon, Georgia. And, um, you know, I would like to tell you that I, you know, I got the good part of all this is that I got to see the world. I got a sense yeah. that there was much more to the world than Tulsa or Missouri or New Jersey or, uh, you know, certainly later Augusta. But it also meant giving up friends yeah, often. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you make friends, and then as soon as you're close, they've, they're they leaving or you're leaving. And I remember having frequent, you know, tearful crying sessions with my friends and when I was very little because we had gotten to be buddies and we had, you know, we were doing stuff we loved to do together. That that probably stayed with me for a long time. Yeah, you that's know, it tough. Made me, you you're, you're so affable. Uh, and I, I wonder... Uh, is that a skill that you had to develop because you were entering all these new environments all the time? I think, you know, at the time I didn't realize it, David, but I, I'm sure that must have been going on. That I, At some point I realized if you don't make friends right away, then you're not going to have friends. You've got to make a friend, hold on to them as long as you can, and then, you know, they may go or you may have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was hard. Yeah. I mean, I was joking about the shots. But, but I mean, the real impact for me was – was friendships and having to make them and give them up quickly. I tried to stay in touch with people, but it was hard. You went to uh, first to Meredith College in, in, in Raleigh, and you were going to study math. I was. I was. I couldn't decide what I was going to study, and a couple of my math and uh, a couple of other teachers in high school said, well, you did well in the math SAT. Why don't you major in math? And I said, well, what am I going to do with that? And one of them said, well, you could be an insurance actuary. <laughs> Thankfully for the insurance industry, I didn't, I didn't go in that direction. <coughs> I kept thinking, well, what am I, where am I going to see people? I'm going to be stuck in an office you know, with a calculator. Or, we didn't have computers back then. Yes. 
Um, but I, you know, the interesting thing was I, my freshman year in college, I was taking advanced math, and the the teacher was an instructor. He he was a grad student at North Carolina State, who basically thought women shouldn't be taking calculus. And so I think every probably every woman, and it was an all women Meredith's an all women school. Uh, every woman in that class probably changed her major. Uh, think <laughs> well, of the loss of talent there. What uh, I'm thinking about is how much I hated calculus, and what <laughs> I wish somebody had said I wasn't qualified to. I wasn't qualified to take it, which I think I proved over time. Uh, then you went on to Duke. I did. And um, at what point? Did, well, let me ask you a different question before we get to um, sort of how you you made your career. Uh, decision. You were, you grew, you lived and were a student in the South during a pretty tumultuous time uh, of the civil rights movement. Um, how how did you, how do you remember those years? And I remember first of all being shocked when we moved to. First of all, I go back to Taiwan. Um, I was twelve, I think, and when my father got word that he was being sent, we were being moved to to Georgia. And I remember thinking, that's where they have plantations and people go around in cotton fields with bare feet. I mean, I just didn't, I, even though my father, I visited my grandparents in North Carolina, I felt Georgia just felt like a different place. And so I, al- I was almost bracing myself. I ended up living with my grandparents in North Carolina for about six months before I joined my parents in Georgia. But I remember being wary of it, not knowing what we were going to... Of course, we moved there. We found out Augusta is a lovely southern city. But it was the time of segregation. There were still white and colored only water fountains in the department stores. The schools were segregated. I went to a white only. This is after having been to military schools, which were very much integrated. Thanks to Eisenhower, Truman and Eisenhower. Yes. The military schools were integrated, so I had gone to school with kids from all over. Um, so, did you think as a kid, this is this is weird, this is not right? It's not right, um, but it was the way it was, and, and we lived in this. We lived in Augusta, and so I went to a white elementary school, junior high, and then high school, and um, you know, we. It was just accepted. You knew I knew there was something wrong with it. I felt, I, I think I felt, uh, you know, I felt not just helpless to do anything about it, but I kept thinking, where where are the people who are going to change this? And, you know, I've talked, it's funny, I've, I've talked to Charlene Hunter-Galt about this mm-hmm. because she was, she grew up in Atlanta. And as you know, she was she one was of the first to integrate, figure, yeah. historic figure. She and Hamilton Holmes integrated the University of Georgia in 1962. So I was in Augusta then in high school, um, and there were people throwing tomatoes and rocks and eggs at them. She ended up leaving and then going back and graduating from the University of Georgia. But it's funny, there I was not even a hundred and some miles down the road from Athens, where the university is, living in Augusta, and pretty much unaware of what was happening. You know, I know it was being covered in the press, but for whatever reason, my parents were not, you know, they were very much out of a military background, and the news was not in our lives for whatever reason. There was some conversation about it, but it was a it was not an activist 
town at that time. There was there were very mild demonstrations in Augusta on the part of the African American, the black community, but nothing like what you were seeing in other places. By the time you got to Duke, uh, that was at the height of the civil rights movement, and there were cl- I mean there was and active, Vietnam, right? Active clashes going on. Well, by the time when I was at Meredith uh, from '64 to '66. It, it, there was more going on. And then by the time I got to Duke, I was in a movement, much more yeah. activist campus. Yeah. There was the anti-war movement. Uh, I was not somebody who jumped into the anti-war movement. I was conflicted about the war in Vietnam. I remember... Well, coming from a military family. Coming from a military family, hearing the military side of the argument, but then seeing the protests. And, of course, it was something we talked about in class all the time. And I was wrestling with it. And it really wasn't until... I think my senior year at Duke, when you know we had seen Mm Lai, and not to mention the spring of my senior year, 1968, uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, assassination of Bobby Kennedy, right after I graduated, it was. I mean, it was. It was as if um, a tornado had hit uh, our country, and and I remember feeling. You know, this country is just spinning. We've spun off the axis. Where are we going? Um, by that time, I had decided the war was was something that had to be questioned. And you went to Washington. You, you studied politics. You went to Washington. Uh, and uh, In college. I got it. Yeah. I got I, I, I went. So from the math experience, fortunately, had a great professor, political science professor at Meredith. She, she you know, encouraged me, which I was already inclined to do, to transfer to Duke. And um, and changed my major political science. I fell in love with politics. Thought I'd work in Washington. I worked here for two summers for my congressman from Georgia's 10th district. He was from Athens. Bob Stevens. He was on the banking committee. Um, and I wanted to come back to Washington after graduating from Duke. But once but again, I had this conversation with a group of of other women who were working on Capitol Hill that summer of 1967. I remember it vividly. And I was talking about I want to come back and I, I want to, you know, get a job on the Hill. Um, you know, what do you think I should do? How should I? And every one of them said to me, well, you know, women are not given a break in this city. You know, you're going to be a clerk. Are you sure you want to do this? You ought to think about you ought to rethink that. It was very discouraging. And, I, and I, a couple of them had law degrees and they were they were pretty low level. I mean, they were great people and, we, you know, smart women. But they felt discouraged for whatever reason. And, you know, it was, it was the, the women's movement. You know, it wasn't, it was the civil rights movement, the women's movement, Vietnam. There was so much turmoil in the air. And the message I, got, I took away from that was, oh, my gosh, I need to rethink this thing. I don't want to go to Washington after all. What am I going to do? I went back to Duke my senior year. I talked to a couple of my professors, one of whom one day said to me that fall, well, did you ever think about covering politics? Yeah. And I, it was if it was kind of as if a light bulb went off, and I thought that's interesting. I could cover politics, and what am? But where am I going to go to do that? I haven't written for the school. I haven't written for the, you know, the Duke Chronicle, the school paper. I don't have any clips to share with anybody, which is what you need. You know that as yes. a former reporter. Yes. So I thought, well, maybe television. <laughs> you know, you don't have to show clips. They won't need any. So I, on my spring break, senior year, I, I went to Atlanta, drove to Atlanta, interviewed with the three news directors at the ABC, CBS, and NBC affiliates, and said, 
I'll take any job, you know, I'll clean the film, I'll answer the phones. And one of them, the ABC news director, uh, gave me a job as a newsroom secretary. Um, and, I'll and, never forget it. And you, and you were, first of all, we should just point out, I mean, we're in the context of today, right? This Me Too movement, right. uh, activism, political activism among women that I think is uh, extraordinary and will probably be the story of 2018 in the midterm elections. But we're talking now, you know, uh, 50 years ago when you were yes. in college. And and there's still, the barriers still are there. A lot of progress has been made. But you ran into, you, you were right at the beginning of all of this. And it's kind of remarkable to think back it is. To, it's so funny because I've been, you know, I mentioned the the instructor at Meredith who who said basically women shouldn't be taking advanced math. Then I had run into the women, you know, of course, worked with women in Washington who said be careful because women don't get a break in this city, uh, you know, on Capitol Hill. And then I started in the media, where quotas, frankly right? it was there were quotas. And, yeah. and the news director, what I what I left out is after this news director interviewed me again I'll never forget I'm sitting in the lobby of WQXI which is the ABC then the ABC station and I got up to leave I said thank you Mr. Conover because um, I was very excited and I turned around to go and he said he said I'm so glad he said besides how could I not hire somebody with legs like yours wow and I you know I'd like to tell you David that I had this great comeback I didn't I yeah. just sort of slumped and walked out the door um but then I, you know, it, it dawned on me that we were in a in a moment when women were going to have to fight wherever they were, whether it was, you know, in uh, teaching or in uh, teaching math or uh, working at an insurance company or working in politics or. But in unlike the media. your your previous experiences, um, you hung in there. I did. But but your path was sort of a, a traditional path, right? Because th- your first on-air experience was as the weather girl. The weather girl, the news director. Yeah. I, I had kept pestering him to let me go um, out and hang out with the reporters and the camera crews. And his answer was, well, why would you want to do that? We already have a woman reporter. Um, <laughs> we got past that, but he came up to me one day and he said, I've just fired our weekend weather girl. And aren't you interested in auditioning? And I said, no, I'm really not. You know, I want to. I have a political science degree. I really want to cover politics. And he said, well, before anybody's going to take you seriously, you need to get some on-air experience. So reluctantly, I auditioned. They and how hired, long did you do that? I did that for six months. Um, I w- it was like Cinderella, David. I, w- I would come in during the week. I was the newsroom secretary. And then they would send me to down an Atlanta department store to pick out a decent, you know, a dress because I dress like a college student still, something to wear on the air on Sunday nights at eleven o'clock. I would come in at six o'clock, rip all the weather wires, memorize everything, make notes on the big weather board, and then do three or four or five—I don't know—five minutes of weather at eleven o'clock Sunday night. But it, it was my introduction to on air. Um, but I think it's fair to say after six months we agreed mutually that this was not what I was cut out for. But 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 they did make uh, it it, uh, it did lead to a reporting opportunity. It, uh, the news director at the CBS station called me up and said, uh, "I've just lost my state legislature reporter. I'd like you to come back because I had already reached out to him. He said, "Can you come over and let's talk about it?" And that's how I got a job covering the state capitol. And it was kind of a, a propitious time to do that because there was an up-and-coming politician in 
Georgia named Jimmy Carter. That's right. He was a former, uh, he had run for governor four years earlier, former state senator, a peanut farmer from South Georgia uh, named Jimmy Carter. And I, in, in 1970, when I was hired to cover uh, the state capitol, the news director wanted me to go hang out and cover a little bit of the Carter Hal Suit campaign. This was the Republican former TV news anchor, direct news director, who was running against him. And um, and so I got to fly around on a, a plane a couple of times around the state with Jimmy Carter. He went on to be elected, succeeded Lester Maddox, yes, who was who famous was great segregationist. Yeah. Pickaxe had the pickaxe at his restaurant. Yeah. Um, but that was my that was my baptism by fire. I mean, I I covered the Georgia legislature for five years. I covered the Carter governorship. I covered a little bit of Atlanta politics. So I got in some city politics. Uh, then a guy, a man named Sam Massell was the mayor. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, who who uh, was really interesting in the in the South. I mean, and, you know, we talked about segregation and the rest of it. He tried to be progressive, was progressive. Of course, Jimmy Carter was progressive um, in a complicated way. I mean, yeah. he reached out to both George Wallace uh, and. Uh, to the progressive elements in the state. Yeah, so talk a little bit about Carter uh, and uh, you watched him evolve as a as a politician and ultimately covered him as a president. I want to get into that in a second, but what were your impressions of him as, as a young reporter covering him as a a political figure in the state. I was fresh. This was my first reporting job. So I was learning literally on the job. I was learning from other reporters. I had never taken a course in journalism. So I was observing. Which, neither did I. I, I kind of <laughs> wonder about that sometimes. Whether journalism is like something that you have to learn by doing. But I, there And there are some great journalism programs and great journalism schools. Um, but I, I also know report, great reporters who didn't go to journalism school. But he was, Jimmy Carter was, had the, you know, the big toothy smile, um, very uh, genial, um, had already figured out how to meet everybody in the room and make you feel like you were the most important person around. Um, and, and already had a story to tell about, yes, I come from South Georgia, yes, I've got a deep Southern accent, but I'm also thinking in progressive ways. I want to bring this state out of, out of the past. And, um, and he was, and it, it, what, I wa- what I watched was the making of a kind of a remarkable campaign. I mean, Jody Powell, yeah. who would go on to be his White House press secretary, was working with him, then Hamilton Jordan who yes. would go on to be with him in the White House. Yeah. Um, a very strategic team. I, so much of this, David, I didn't. I would love to tell you I understood it at the time. I didn't. I, I was asking questions all the time, but I didn't begin to understand what they had put together, I think, until I had been covering them for a year. And then um, he, uh, you, you, made a, 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 you took another step to NBC uh, as a correspondent, and you actually went out and covered some of his presidential race. I did. You you were one of the boys on the bus. I was, and this this was, this was an amazing time because I had come from five years of being a, a Georgia political reporter, jumping to NBC. Which, by the way, they you know when I first interviewed with NBC, they I went to New York and interviewed the vice president, uh, Dick Richard Fisher. Said to me, you know, you need to go back and work on your voice. You know, a little bit too much of a southern accent. He said, well, just find a voice coach and come back in a year. So I went back, got out the yellow pages, found a voice coach. He called me back a week later and said, we just fired our 
one of our Southeast United States reporters based in Atlanta quickly So, so don't lose your accent. Don't lose your accent. We're ready to hire you. <laughs> but yes, so I went to work for NBC with still a little bit of a Southern accent. But that was, that truly was baptism by fire because I was thrown in with reporters with a whole lot more experience than I had and thrown into stories that were all over the Southeast from from, you know, literally the 10 states of the Southeast and the Bahamas. I went to the Bahamas once to cover a hanging. Uh, I call myself, you know, they, or they call me the wildlife reporter. I was covering fire ant plagues in Georgia and <laughs> alligator farms in Louisiana and the rest of it. But, yes, I was covering Carter, the Carter president. They knew that you had covered him. And I, my argument to NBC was, yes, this guy looks promising. At first, they didn't take him seriously. And I said, no, you know, you need to pay attention. They've mapped out the whole United States. He knows people in all 50 states. And you had better. kept in touch with the And Carter I had stayed people. in touch. Um, so, yeah, I argued that this, this, you know, these are, meanwhile, NBC New York was looking at people like Scoop Jackson, Henry Jackson of Washington right. State, Morris Udall, Birch by people who they knew from this Washington. goes by the way to the thing we were talking about earlier which is it's you know the Gary Hart thing Washington's always the last to get the news Jimmy Carter understood the country he did. better than the people in Washington did they and he I guess he had studied McGovern and the way McGovern lost in in 72 and they tried to turn that around to their to their benefit but I I mean also I the saw first guy, let me interrupt you for a second the first guy who uh understood the possibilities of the Iowa caucuses. For sure. And that was the main, that was the big lesson that they took from from George McGovern, that he went into Iowa and basically dissected neighborhood by neighborhood. And that's what Carter went door to door. He slept in people's homes uh, in 1975, uh, maybe even 74, I have to look back. But, Mm -hmm. But certainly throughout 75, he was in Iowa 20 or 30 times. Um, they ran a really smart campaign, and you know, I argued to NBC this guy is going to go places. I don't want to make it sound like I was a genius, but I at least noticed that that they were plotting out where they were going to go. And then, of course, when Jimmy Carter started doing better, I was pulled off the campaign because I was so green. I was the new guy on the, yeah. on the new kid on the block. But when he got elected. Uh, you, you you got transferred I was to transferred. cover the White House. I lobbied NBC. I said, you know, I do know these people. Send me to. So they they named me the third man on the totem pole. I, I was the one who covered weekends, and I did the Today Show and weekends. Uh, but I was in Washington. It was it was January of 1977, the beginning of, you know, this this upstart Southern governor had, had turned out a. You know, a well-known Washington figure in Gerald Ford. It was a so, time of so big seven change. years after being a part-time secretary, and is, was it seven? And 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 those those Sunday night weather girl, you're covering the White House. I was covering the White House, and man, did I feel like a fish out of water, because as much as I had wanted to come to Washington when I got here, I realized mainly how much I didn't know and how much. I mean, I'd gotten to know a lot of these great reporters on the bus you know the the johnny apples and yeah. the david broders and apple from the times the, these the great david broder from the post curtis curtis wilkie yeah, from the boston from globe, the boston great, globe yeah. the, these were these were amazing and, and you know david and, and johnny apple are gone but curtis is still around at the university of mississippi um but i learned a lot from them i learned a lot just from you know, asking nonstop questions and watching what they did. Now, were there any other women 
uh, in broadcasting covering the White House at the time? There were a few. Um, uh, at NBC, a woman named Marilyn Berger, who had been the Washington Post mm-hmm. State Department reporter, was covering, was number one at the White House. So I was with a woman reporter uh, at NBC, a woman named Ann Compton, who was there for years, you know, Ann, for ABC. And then after I had been there a few years, they brought in, CBS brought in Leslie Stahl. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, it's funny, Leslie and I have stayed good friends, and Ann too. I mean, I see her. But we like to we like to joke about the fact that in those days, the networks would kind of pit the women against each other. You know, we were. I was really. I was truly competing with the Sam Donaldsons and the Bob Schieffers, but the network would say, "Well, what about you know so and so?" And it was. It was. And sometimes in more subtle ways than others, I don't think they would do that. They can't do that today because there's so many women mm-hmm. around. But in that day, that we were. We were. There weren't very many of us. What um, What happened to Jimmy Carter? Talk about his his. Uh his four years there because you stayed and you, you saw the you saw his the historic transformation from Carter to Ronald Reagan. So I want to talk about Reagan because um, you were there at what nine years at the White House? Uh, I was there six years six six years, years. long yeah. time, especially spanning administrations. but just a word on Carter and how you would sum up his, his presidency. I think you have to, I think for me, I go back to their attitude during the campaign was that they did this on their own. They didn't get the help of the Democratic Party establishment. Mm-hmm. And so they were going to go to the White House and they were going to recreate what they had done in Atlanta. They didn't really want, they didn't reach out for Washington help. They didn't ask for the establishment to help them. They didn't go to the DNC, to the Democratic Party. They eventually established a relationship with Bob Strauss. You know, they had named yeah. Bob Strauss there. Chairman of the chairman, DNC. Chairman of the DNC, and then later on a trade, trade representative. Um, and I think that really was the seed. The, those were the seeds of Jimmy Carter's problem, in that he, he felt he could do it alone. He wasn't listening or talking regularly enough to people who knew. They figured this out late in that first, in that term, but by then I think it was too late. The 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 resentment had already set in. Teddy Kennedy had already decided to run against him. In to a run primary, against highly him, unusual, which was a, a blow to Carter and clearly hurt him and the Democratic in the Democratic Party. I mean, you can argue about whether Carter would have won anyway if if Kennedy hadn't challenged him. But I think there's no question that had some effect. Carter made one decision, or they made a campaign decision late in the campaign, and I presume that as a White House reporter you were following that campaign made a decision to participate in a debate with Ronald Reagan a week before the election and it turned into kind of a disaster uh, for them because Reagan who was viewed up to that point as kind of a right-wing fanatic uh, came across as more like who he was at least as a personality genial Genial and and I mean, Reagan was under under greatly underestimated going into that. Yes, he'd been the two-term governor of California, but you're right. He people thought he was so right-wing and that he might get in office and 
you know, we were going to bomb Russia. I mean, there were there were these extreme views. Reagan shows up. He's smiling. He he talks about you know, don't make fun of my of my uh, youth and inexperience, yeah. and, and it and and he he walked away with that debate. The mm. Carter people were not prepared for that. You could argue Carter either should have agreed to several debates with Ronald Reagan or nothing. Well, ever since that um, time, and I think I talked with somebody else about this, but ever since that time, we, uh, I think it was Tom Donilon maybe, but there, no one ever has agreed to a debate a week before the election because there's no time to recover if you have a bad debate. But Carter was going through a very tough time then. He was, you know, the Iran hostage crisis right. was still raging a very, uh, uh, you know, that, that arguably the most... That and the economy and the way he Which handled the economy the were the two most damaging things for him. And he and so you're arguing that he needed to he needed to take the gamble. I, he probably did, but in so doing, he needed to have a strategy that he didn't have, and the and the Reagan people were ready. Well, and Reagan, it was an opportunity for Reagan, who was after all a performer, and he uh, he he reassured Americans to the point where he be, made himself an acceptable. Uh, alternative. So, talk about covering Reagan. You were there uh, at the on March 30th of 1981, shortly after Reagan took office, when he was at the Washington Hilton, and right. and and was uh, nearly assassinated. He had been in office, as you say, just a little over two months. It was um, 1981, and um, I was part of the pool. You know, the, at the White House when the president travels, they. They divvy up different networks, different uh, newspapers will send a reporter to go and then report back for the rest of the press corps. So it was my turn to be in the pool that day. He was going to the Washington Hilton. And it was just, it was like any other day. I mean, as routine as covering a president can be. But I was in the, uh, went into the building, covered the speech into the hotel, the Hilton, came out uh, a different door and was standing there. And I'll never forget, of course, I was yelling a question at him. He came out the private exit where they would bring out VIPs. I was with the, the pool standing maybe 30 feet away. Um, and I yelled a question at him about Lech Valenza. He had said something, done something that day in Poland. I don't. I need to go back and look at what the question was. And I said, Mr. President, Lech Valenza said. And right then, there was this pop, pop, pop sound. And and. People started screaming, get down, get down. Of course, it sounded like firecrackers, but, you know, nobody's going to shoot off firecrackers. And uh, it, it was in a blur. The motorcade was moving. They yelled, you know, get in the car or not. And, of course, I stayed because I needed to file that something had, somebody had taken a shot at the president. But what happened when the motorcade moved away, I could see Jim Brady. The president, the president had been shoved into the car, but there was Jim Brady down and, and one of the police, I could, I could see was down. And I knew Jim Brady. He had, you know, was Reagan's pr- press secretary. I'd gotten to know him during the campaign. And um, I could see that he was gravely. Lovely guy. Lovely man. Yeah. Uh, that he was terribly, he was really in bad shape. And, and at the same time, I had to go file because we didn't have cell phones in 1981. Right. Ran into the lobby. That phone was already taken. You know, there were about, what are there, about eight reporters in the pool, maybe seven. And I had to run across the street, find this, this uh, government contractor down the hall of this obscure office building across the street, grab the phone, called NBC, and filed. But um, 
it was uh, it was a moment like no other. I mean, you think you think you're going to be ready as a reporter. You've covered a president. In this case, I had covered a little bit of his campaign, but mainly I'd covered him in the transition from mm-hmm. November to January, and then covered two months of his presidency, and then, boom, um, he he almost died, um, and nothing can prepare you for that. Nothing can prepare you to see somebody. Um, wounded as Jim Brady was. Um, I got to be, I already knew his wife, Sarah. I got to be much better friends with her later. Um, because as we know, Jim had a, you know, terrible brain injury as a a result of that. Um, but it, it, it reminded the fragility of life and a reminder of the importance of, you know, why we need the press covering the president all the time. Because if something had happened, of course, the president was injured and he was in the hospital for days, weeks right. after that. But if something had happened, if if, if John Hinckley had been successful in, in assassinating Ronald Reagan, think of, you know, what that would have meant for the country. Um, you, um, you went to, you did your first stint with PBS after, uh, after that. Uh, it was... An unusual move to go from the what you were doing, prestigious beat. NBC's a much uh, bigger footprint. Uh, why why did you do that? Well, it's interesting. This was 1982. I was covering. Um, I was the Today Show reporter for NBC. I'd gone from the White House to doing interviews every morning from the Washington bureau for the Today Show. And my good friend, I had gotten to know Jim Lehrer and knew Robin McNeil, and I knew they were expanding their half-hour show on PBS to an hour. And I talked to Jim, and, and, and more than that, I talked to Les Crystal, who had been a former president of NBC News. He had been lured over by Jim and Robin to be the first executive producer of the, of the news hour. And I loved what I was doing at NBC. I loved the White House. I loved covering... But I also was already sensing how, on the Today Show, interviews were getting shorter. Uh, This is 1982. This is a long time ago. But already I could feel that everything had to be condensed. It had to be shortened. And there was just something appealing when Les, Crystal, and I talked, when Jim and I talked about the idea that they were going to go to a whole hour, which is something the commercial networks had talked about doing, never did, still haven't done, that just sounded like you know, a great opportunity to be on the ground floor of this whole new venture in television journalism, to be able to go long and deep in television news, and it appealed to me. Uh, you also had the opportunity, and uh, and I've got a lot to cover with you in a short period of time here, so I'm going to skip over some things here, but uh, while you were at PBS, you, you moderated a debate that became one of the most uh, remembered debates of all time between Lloyd Benson and Dan Quayle, uh, vice presidential 1988. candidates. Yeah. It was. It was. That's right. I mean, it was. It was uh, uh, George H. W. Bush. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, was term limited, and each uh, and his vice president George H. W. Bush was running for president. Chose um, this um, little known senator from Indiana, Dan Quayle, to be his vice presidential running mate. Um, running against, uh, thought um, to he was young, appeared ca- young, a little callow, a little, and, yeah, inexperienced. Yeah. Running against a, a more senior, well, Michael Dukakis was the was the Democratic nominee, and, and his vice presidential running mate was Lloyd Benson, who yeah. was 
this distinguished. Venerable. Venerable, that's right. Uh, uh, veteran Texan, of Capitol Hill. Yeah. That's right. Had been around for a long time. And the expectations of Quayle were very low going. And that was the debate where at one point, uh, Dan Quayle compared himself to John Kennedy. He, as he had been doing. As he had been doing, and Benson was ready with a, you know, Senator, you know, uh, you know, I know John Kennedy. I've worked with John Kennedy. So you're no John Kennedy. Um, you were sitting there. Did you, did you know at the moment? Well, the that, room exploded, first yeah, of all. Yeah. And then the panel, I was with uh, uh, a couple of actually good friend journalists, John Margolis, Tom Brokaw. John Margolis, my old colleague from the Chicago Tribune. That's right. And Tom Brokaw. And I think we all looked at each other at that moment like this is, you know, this this may be the moment from this debate. Yeah. Um, you went, another Georgian played in your life there. You went uh, to Ted Turner's network, uh, CNN. Um Why'd you make that move? Ten years at the News Hour, had no plans to leave. Really loved being there. Um, but at a dinner in ni- in uh, 1992, um, a man named Tom Johnson walked up, who had been a, a, a friend, who had been in the Lyndon Johnson White House, had run the 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 newspapers that Lyndon Johnson's family owned in Texas, had gone on to Los Angeles to be the publisher of the L.A. Times, and uh, and. Uh, and was then working for Ted Turner, came up to me and said, Did you, would you ever think about leaving the news hour and coming to work for CNN? I said, no, I love where I am. But the conversation started, and he was persistent, kept talking. And after three or four months, he talked me into this great opportunity to do something very different. He said, you're going to be have a chance to work for a 24-7 news network that's international. You're going to be able to do things that you can't do at PBS. And it was a tough decision, David. It was really tough because I love the news hour. I couldn't think of a reason to leave except for the chance to do something different. And, and ultimately, that's what I did. So I made the jump, 1993. How does uh, – and you stayed there for till 2005, is that right? I did for 12 years. Yeah. Um, cable news. Um, how has cable news changed uh, the, the, the news and how has it changed our politics? It's changed it a lot. I mean, what Ted Turner created in 1980 when he went on the air was a uh, was this 24/7 dream. This you know we're on the hour, we're on the air around the clock, and we are everywhere in the world. We are able to cover everything whenever you, whatever you're interested in, we're going to cover it. Um, it was a great concept. Nobody thought he could pull it off. They made fun of him. You remember it was chicken noodle news. Yeah. Uh, the networks looked down on Ted Turner joked about him and said you know and they, remember they were in this little uh, you know rundown building up on wisconsin avenue in washington when they started out with their bureau here um but lo and behold they were serious they yeah. ended up and they ended up covering the gulf war in 1990 better than anybody else they had a team in baghdad when the war broke out um, and people started to take them seriously then and when so when tom came to me a few years later by then you know they were a place of stature, and um, uh, and 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 so cable news was created by Ted Turner, but a few years after that, not but, and a few years after that, when the competition came along, MSNBC, uh, Fox News, and so on, I think then it began to change because instead of covering the world, I think there was more attention being paid, frankly, to to competing with each other and and making sure that. At this hour, you know, we're covering the lead story because if the other channel's covering it and they're, ch- and they're covering it. And, of course, uh, Rupert Murdoch with Fox, 
you know, said openly that he felt that there was a an I, part of the ideological spectrum that wasn't being covered, and he felt he needed to achieve the guy, that. The guy who uh, has uh, most brilliantly exploited that environment has been Donald Trump, who understood that the battle for eyeballs was such that if you if you're willing to light yourself on fire, that people will watch. He was able to take his story in 2015 uh, from the moment he came down that escalator um, in New York City and somebody who's a practiced and, and successful television reality show uh, star, somebody who uh, you know was the front page of the tabloid newspapers in New York for, Forever. for decades. Yeah. To take all that, you know, that those contacts, that talent, that gift that he has for being in front of a crowd, for holding people's attention, for grabbing people, frankly, by the by the collar and saying, listen to me. Or somewhere. <laughs> uh, he took that talent and it and it played and cable news uh, and the rest and the rest of the media um was became a in effect a, a successful playground for him we, and, we gave and him the ta- time and the space in the air in yep. in retrospect was that was that a mistake was he, should he have been covered differently it's hard to say that going back i i would say <laughs> I, I think going back it's clear that every everybody i know let me put it this way everybody i know who makes decisions in cable news and across the media spectrum says in looking back that we wish that we had found a way to have some more balanced coverage in 2015 and 2016. Because what happened was the the candidate who gave the great speech, who gave the great quote, ended up getting the lion's well, share and, of and coverage. Well, and also sort of treatment that other candidates wouldn't necessarily get calling in two shows. And That's right. Gave him a great advantage. and Because he went everywhere, he spoke everywhere, and, and was great. It was a great show. It was great TV. Is Fox News um, news? Well, they certainly cover the news, but you know, and and cable, as you said a minute ago, has become something that I think I think is now is today not only twenty four seven. It also reflects the combative, competitive atmosphere of 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 television news. It is the zenith of competition among. The television, the commercial television channels, uh, they compete by the hour, by the half hour, the but quarter. You know, be, every minute they, they, they do are competing seem to be, for audience. They do seem to be um, very much uh, a, a an outlet for the Trump administration. A you know, effectively state media at times. Well, there's a there's a closeness to the Fox News organization and the Trump White House that, um, you know, has drawn attention. Uh, there's no question. I mean, the president's hired Bill Shine, who was yeah, a vice former, president, or, yeah. you know, helped run the news operation at Fox. Um, president's very close friends with Sean Hannity. Um, and there are a number of other connections. Um, so I, I think we know about a lot of those connections. Well, I think you take it into consideration when you watch Fox and and but they're different. You know, Fox isn't the same every hour. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, for example, I know Brett Baer very well. Um, I think Brett prides himself on doing a straight news news program. 
there are other people I know at Fox who are, you know, straight reporters. Yeah, I did Chris so, Wallace's show all the time. That's right. And and Chris on Sundays, Chris's interview show. Um, so I think I think you look at different parts of the day and different programs and different people. Now you've returned here. How How is there a uh, to PBS where we're sitting uh, today and still faithful to the vision of a, a, a thoughtful hour-long uh, broadcast. Is, is, that, um, is that in keeping with the pace of the times? I think it is. I think it's more than I sit there as we do an hour-long <laughs> I think it's in keeping with – it may not be in keeping with so much of what's available to people now on cable – uh, in, uh, in on the internet, but I will tell you that it's in keeping with what people want. I when I go out and I you know try to interact with the American people and ask them what they're interested in, or they come up to me, what they say is, I want a news source that will give it time, will give give the story space, will reflect on what's going on. Um, I think this hurly burly. Uh, warp speed news environment that we are in right now where uh, it's like we swim in a sea of news. We're surrounded by it. It's overwhelming. We're asked to pass judgment on it every second. There is more than ever, I think, uh, a need, a demand for a place that is going to take the time, spend the hour, be thoughtful, be reflective, and put put the news in context. And that's what I'm, you know, we're committed to every day here at the News Hour. Um. You and I have this bond that in that um, we we both have three children and but uh, my oldest and and yours uh, both have had struggles. Uh, your mm-hmm. son Jeffrey, um, talk talk about that and how that's impacted on your life. And David, you and I have talked about this, and and uh, um, it's it's a huge part of. My life, our life, you know, my husband Al and I, and, and I, as I know it is for you and Susan. Um, Jeffrey was born with spina bifida uh, and had a mild case of it and managed very well. When he was 16 years old, he had to have a procedure. Um, and he came out of that procedure dramatically changed um, with someone with profound disabilities. Um, and that and was completely unexpected. Completely unexpected. Um, he had been some a young man who skied and swam and rode a bicycle and he the next thing we knew he was in a coma for for four months and had to learn how to eat again and walk uh, he, he only he's in a wheelchair now he has he walks only for exercise can't use his right arm his vision's impaired his speech is impaired his short-term memory is impaired um it's every parent's worst nightmare um that sounds like a cliche but it it is it's no, the worst I mean, thing imaginable i think short of losing a child uh which is is in itself unimaginable um you you have a, a child who you know one way and then the next time you turn around this is, it's a different person um and yet on the inside jeffrey's still the same great guy the great sense of humor yeah. uh, perceptive smart guy that he was but he doesn't have he doesn't have all the physical abilities that he did before. Yeah. But it's changed our lives, no question. It it made me, I thought about giving up work altogether and spending all my time being his mom and the mom to our other two children. But a doctor said to me uh, one day at Johns Hopkins, he said, you know, there's really, there's not very much you can do for Jeffrey. You need to be there as his mother. But 
you can't be there 24 7 he's going to have a he's going to have a life of his own and you need to be the best you need to be the strongest person you can be and the way to do that is by staying with the work that you do and and living the life that you do and therefore you know you and al will be the parents that jeffrey needs and 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 to his great credit jeffrey's fought his way through he's gotten finished college yeah, went on it took amazing. him he missed a year of school but he went on to go back to high school finish high school it took him eight and a half years to finish college he ended up um, going to a school for a few years in North Carolina that had a dorm just for students with in wheelchairs with dis- significant disabilities um, and then David for the last seven or eight years he's lived in a wonderful supportive community yeah. in Maryland yeah. uh, where he is uh, lives in a group home and comes to visit us all the time and we have him home many most weekends so um, it's how'd your other kids uh, deal with this I think the most overlooked thing yeah. uh, about uh, the children with these struggles is what happens to the siblings because necessarily you have to spend so much time focused on the child who has the problem and you're asking the other kids to make sacrifices and it's not fair and they are right. solicitous of their sibling but also angry that they have to make these sacrifices and then guilty about having been angry. It's really complicated. It is really complicated. And, it, you know, we tried to talk to his younger brother, Ben, and younger sister, Lauren. Lauren was nine and Ben was 11 when this happened. Um, we tried to have uh, conversations as they grew up, and we still have conversations uh, today. Uh, but it's hard to unpack because it has an effect on them of yes, I need to step aside because Jeffrey needs all this attention for understandable reasons. And so there's that, stepping aside, stepping back. But there's also, you know, he's not, I'm healthy and he's not. And there's a, there's some kind of guilt, yes. I think, connected with that. Yes, yes. So there's a lot to, it's interesting, I just the other day I interviewed Joanna Breyer, who's the happens to be the wife of Justice Stephen Breyer, and she's a psychoanalyst. She's written a book that just came out this month about, it's called When Your Child is Sick, and she devotes a lot of space in the book to siblings of children ah. and how parents need to think about the siblings, not not forget the siblings, talk to the siblings about what's going on, engage them. I mean, I've second-guessed a lot the way we handled it, both Al and I have. Um, I because I to this day I, I worry that I didn't pay enough attention to yeah, them. Yeah, I, th- I think that's also you know. I can just speak from my own experience, from Susan's experience. I think that's also common. But I think the the important thing here is to remember that um, there are, it's that the whole family has to cope with the right. impact of these things, and it's it's tragic for the child who has the problem it's difficult for everyone else and and there's a lot of a lot a lifetime of second guessing and about a lifetime i agree there's a lifetime of second guessing and feeling guilty about a lot of things and mm-hmm. um and having said that lauren and ben are to me two f- incredibly compassionate people yes because they've lived, they have an older big brother, and they've seen what Jeffrey's gone through, and it's made them much more sensitive and open to people with disabilities. It's made our whole family. I mean, I am, I mean, I I thought I was a sensitive, compassionate person before this, but um, I, I, I now, I think I see much more clearly what people with disabilities 
experience, uh, I see. I try to see it through Jeffrey's eyes. That you know, often people don't even make eye contact with people in a wheelchair. Right. They don't. They don't look at them. They don't. Um, they assume they can't communicate as well. They assume they don't understand what's being said around them, and that they can't do very much. And um, it's 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 very tough. It's very tough. I. I th- I think you you probably agree with me there you know you can go to this dark place where you say you think about what might have been what your th- aspirations were but you reach a point where if your child is happy and healthy every day you you count your blessings and um uh I'm so glad Jeffrey is at that point where he and Lauren my Lauren uh as well I, we celebrate what Jeffrey is today, and when we're with him, uh, most of the time he's in a great, he's in great spirits, and he's got an incredible curiosity. He's texting me all the time about what's going on in the news. He wants to know, you know, why did, uh, you know, why why the Supreme Court pick and not another one? Um, so he's he's engaged. But you're absolutely right, David. I mean, you can't, we can't allow ourselves to go back and and do the what ifs all yeah. the time you could do that but it's not it's good for painful. anybody else it's it's it, it's yeah. it's incredibly painful and it's not helpful for anybody else around yeah. us well judy woodruff uh you are um you are a historic figure <laughs> in american journalism and a wonderful presence uh in uh in, in our uh, in our national life so it's it's a it's it's great to sit with you thank you i've enjoyed it Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.